0: topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitian's Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu.
1: Welcome to episode 206 of the Naturally Nourished podcast. Today we are diving in on a topic that we often discuss in the context of insulin resistance and weight loss, but maybe haven't really given its own dedicated episode per se. So we'll be covering today, diabetes, where we went wrong. And in this episode, we'll talk more about how we got here, why type 2 diabetes is so rampant in the U.S. and really where the conventional management of type 2 diabetes is doing us a disservice. And then next week, we'll hit you with part two, which will be diabetes, a functional approach that will be jam-packed with diet, lifestyle, and supplement solutions because there's just so much here on this topic.
2: Most definitely. And as a certified diabetes educator, I know all too well the recommendations and interventions and so we will be unpacking again more of the allopathic or mainstream medicine approach in today's episode this would be a great one to share with family members that are newly diagnosed or are looking to make lifestyle change or trying to understand why they're having side effects from their medications perhaps uh, this would be a really empowering episode that we hope will make a shift from this epidemic that is really rampant through the U.S. and so many developed countries. Totally. Before we dive in, let's just tell listeners, if they haven't heard yet,
1: about our YouTube channel.
2: Yes, So we launched or relaunched, I should say, the Naturally Nourished YouTube channel and we now have almost 10 videos that cover anything from why we hate non-caloric sweeteners to my famous low-carb chocolate chip cookies from the Anti-Anxiety Diet, a great (laughs) recipe that would pair well with today's conversation. Uh, we cover things like cast iron cooking, and what is a whole food, as well as even making real foods taste good, and the exploration of different flavors that you have on your palate. Like, how do you know if something's too bitter, or too sweet, or too salty, or spicy, and how do you modify the recipe to make sure that all of those flavors are coming into balance? So we're so excited to share this free resource with you guys All of the videos range from 8 to 12 minutes in length, so they're really easy to take on and learn some really applicable tips from each video. Um, Many of them come with recipe suggestions and more, and we're so excited to share it with you. We hope that you are enjoying it and loving it, and every time that you comment and like and share a video with friends or family, that's a great way for you to help to make our YouTube channel more visible, and um, we're really hoping that it takes off with great steam, just like the podcast has. Yes, so if you're a podcast listener and you haven't gone over and subscribed yet,
1: please do that so that we can keep you up to date. Every Thursday, we'll be releasing a new video, and we've been putting in a lot of time and effort on our parts and even doing hair and makeup for you guys. So, yeah you know, (laughs) you know, it's going to be good.
2: Yes. So we need to see that. We need to see the rev go up so that after Becky's maternity, we go back to the motivation to do it all over again. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yes. And before we get into today's episode, I want to announce that we are in open enrollment for the September launch of the 12 week food as medicine, virtual ketosis Program so we are so excited this round is going to start in September on the 9th I believe yes and classes are bi-weekly however this round is going to fall during Becky's maternity. And so when you register for this round, you will have all the materials in your classroom available immediately. So you'll have all six hour and a half classes, which are typically only done live every other week. They're going to all be available for the entire 14 weeks of your program. So it's 12 weeks active. And then you get two weeks rolling over at the end to complete the materials. You're going to have all of the downloads, the worksheets, and The recipes all available immediately as well, but then we will be providing you weekly email roundups Which will be timestamped. so you'll get these every other week to just kind of keep pace and curate the process And then in addition to this because we are releasing everything at once and you're not going to have that live component We are discounting the program at 20% off and in addition to that, I am giving you an additional two live Q and A's. So I will be doing a and A after class one, and then I will be doing a and A after class four. So this will be in addition to the six hour and a half modules or classes that you will get, including functional medicine meeting food as medicine. So we address things like the HPA access and hormone health. We talk about the role of fasting on your thyroid and adrenals and various forms of fasting. What are other big highlights of this program, Becky?
1: We go really down the rabbit hole on women's hormones, which I think is an area that our podcast listeners certainly appreciate. We have a whole module dedicated to detox and a little bit of nutrigenomics and genetic SNPs um, and applying this for neurological benefits.
2: Tons of gut stuff. Yes,
1: a ton on the gut. So multiple modules where we address gut and go down the rabbit hole of taking a candida quiz and assessing your microbiome also a whole module on leaky gut and addressing food sensitivity and what to do if, you know, keto isn't enough and you need to kind of up level. So every class is taught with one to two functional medicine topics and ways to really up level your process.
2: And then all connecting it back into nutritional ketosis or a low-carb diet. So how does the microbiome play an interplay with your blood sugar regulation and sugar cravings? And what's the influence of non-caloric sweeteners on your microbiome and so much more? So every class is going to have some actionable items, some suggested advanced labs, supplement strategy, and food-as-medicine tips. It is the most affordable, practical way to really launch your functional medicine adventure. So if you've been looking at savings to try to work with a practitioner, this foundational program may very well fit that bill and then some. And if you've been on the fence and you've been a listener, this is going to be the most affordable time with this 20% off due to Becky's maternity. And that's already discounted in the cart. So all you have to do is go over to alimillerrd.com under our programs, Purchase and add to your cart our 12-week Food as Medicine virtual ketosis uh, class, and we can't wait for you to join us. Okay. (laughs) So we have so much ground to cover, Becky. Let's get into today's topic, diabetes, where we went wrong. Yes. So
1: let's just start off by defining and giving a little bit of context to diabetes. So first of all, what is it? And then maybe we'll get into diagnosis in the conventional model
2: sure so there are two types of diabetes type 1 and type 2 and it used to be called juvenile and adult onset so we'll kind of break down why that's no longer relevant Uh, But type 1 diabetes is of an autoimmune origin in which the immune system can attack the beta cells of the pancreas, and these are the cells of the pancreas that make insulin. So the type 1 diabetic is generally going to be diagnosed in childhood or at least before age 20, and they are really considered insulin dependent because their body does not have the ability to produce insulin levels. Um, and so we can see still some functional approaches with the type one diabetic, be that there is the autoimmune connection. So managing inflammation, working with the microbiome, there's definitely layers to unpack for those of you that are uh, family members of type one diabetics. But we are going to be in today's episode for intent and purpose, putting a lot of information into type two diabetes which was historically called adult onset. But we really can't call it that now because as of you know, 2018, there were 187,000 children um, or people aged under 18 that were diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. So we're really calling type 2 diabetes more of the lifestyle influencing factor. There is not autoimmune influence. So the body has not attacked the pancreatic beta cells. But we do see insulin resistance. It's more of a metabolic disorder that occurs from increased body fat as well as excessive carbohydrate intake. And then there's other lifestyle factors beyond even the diet, like stress can have an influence on how our body manages insulin and endocrine-disrupting hormones can interfere with how insulin. So toxicity, diet, weight lifestyle and this will influence how much insulin is being released in fact type 2 diabetics often go hyper insulinemia meaning they put out too much insulin before they go insulin insufficient So many of them start with oral medication, but if they don't apply lifestyle in addition to just taking their medication, then they're often going to be set up to, over time, be demanding that exogenous insulin hormone as well. So just because someone's using insulin does not make them a type 1 versus type 2 diabetic. It just makes someone an insulin-dependent diabetic.
1: Right. And we'll get into a little bit more on insulin resistance in a moment, but let's just give a little bit of of context in terms of the numbers in the US because this is really quite an epidemic.
2: Yes, and these are numbers of of just type 2 diabetes, right? Correct. So um, again, type 1, we don't see as much of an influx of trend uh, because it is more autoimmune origin, Uh, but type 2 is the one that we're really seeing rampantly increasing based on the lifestyle elements, and I would say most namely excessive carbohydrate intake. Um, So I think it's very clear and such a disservice that, uh, as we'll talk about how the diabetic diet in a clinical setting is managed, it's not just overtly acknowledged as carbohydrate abuse in theory. Um, And so, you know, when the body is not managing blood sugar, we should reduce the primary macronutrient that breaks down to glucose or blood sugar. I think that's a pretty one plus two equals three. Um, But we're not seeing that in the way that it's managed. And that's one of our key frustrations, I would say. (laughs) absolutely. So with continued carb um, over intake, we're seeing now 34.2 million people. Uh, This is 10.5% of the U.S. population as a diabetic. Um, We are seeing 26.9 million people. Um, that are diagnosed and 7.3 million people that are undiagnosed. So of that population of diabetics, over 20% are likely undiagnosed. And it is the seventh leading cause of death in the U.S. It is the number one cause of kidney failure, lower limb amputations, and adult blindness. And I think especially if we're looking in the world of comorbidity, that diabetes could even be pushed substantially higher as a leading cause of death in the U S and in the last 20 years, we've seen the number of adults diagnosed with diabetes, um, more than doubling. Yeah. Pretty staggering in terms of the numbers and then pre-diabetes too, which we'll get
1: into kind of the nuance there. Um, we're seeing 88 million people, 18 plus that are diagnosed as pre-diabetics. That would be 34 and a half percent of the U S population.
2: Wow. And is that inclusive, Becky? Do you know for sure Uh, the 88 million, including those 34 million that are diabetic? Or this is in addition addition. to? Wow. So that means that literally we're almost at 50% because it was 10.5% of the U.S. population is a type 2 diabetic and 34.5% of the U.S. is a pre-diabetic. So that puts us at 44.9 or no, 45 exactly 45%. Um, So that's quite staggering, most definitely. And yeah, not that shocking when we take into account 60
1: plus percent of our population is obese. So that kind of adds up and, and maybe that undiagnosed proportion kind of fits in and factors in there too.
2: Yes. And the medical costs, especially when we're talking about the impact on taxpayers and in our hospital systems. And again, noting that this is an epidemic, the amount of life influence in the States, um, both on a financial and quality of life and um, impact on our society, the medical costs for people with diabetes on average is twice as much for those that don't have diabetes.
1: So pretty intense. Um, Let's dig in a little bit and just um, define insulin resistance a little further because we can be insulin resistant really for years before getting that official stamp Diagnosis of diabetes?
2: Yeah. So, like I said, you know, the insulin is produced by the beta cells of the pancreas, and insulin is reduced in response to glucose. And glucose gets in the bloodstream predominantly from increased carbohydrate or or from higher carbohydrate intake. The higher insulin is released from the pancreas to try to dock to the insulin receptors on the cell walls to allow these doors to open to allow the glucose into the cells. So it's like a lock and key mechanism that when the body gets a breakdown of carbohydrates and starts to see an influx of glucose. The pancreas gets the alarm and pushes out the insulin. The insulin is in theory to dock to the receptor sites to open the doors to let the glucose in. So in the sense of insulin resistance, what happens over time is too much insulin is demanded And so the pancreas tends to overreact to the glucose spiking. And we'll get this again, hyperinsulinemia. So insulin levels start to get elevated. Insulin is a pro-inflammatory hormone. And insulin and its mechanism beyond getting the glucose into the cells, all of that excess glucose gets stored as fat. And this creates a chicken and egg relationship because increased fat storage creates more insulin resistance so like that insulin hormone starts to kind of bounce off of that cell receptor versus docking appropriately and we start to see increased visceral adipose tissue or vat which creates more insulin resistance creating more insulin demand and driving more body fat gain and it goes so forth and so forth and like i said There are medications that we would initially bring in. Many of them we'll talk through today, but some of them, the most popular starting point is an oral hypoglycemic drug, which is going to interfere with how the liver dumps glucose or manages glucose signaling. And that's going to be one mechanism to try to bring down glucose. There's also drugs that try to delay or interfere with the breakdown of carbohydrates into glucose. And those can cause a lot of GI duress, but either way... The insulin mechanism itself over time, if the diet, if the stimulus of the excessive carbohydrate does not get controlled, is going to become dysfunctional because it's like you're ringing a doorbell and that doorbell has to get louder and louder and louder for someone to hear and eventually the, the wiring just gets you know, fused and burned out. Sure. And like you said,
1: might need to acknowledge this as literally carbohydrate abuse, right?
2: Most definitely. Yeah. And, um, you know, the big thing to watch is that with non-caloric sweeteners, even there is, you know, as I talk about glute one and, um, you know, the taste receptors on our tongue and how there is some insulin signaling response to non-caloric sweeteners. It's important to note that, You know, maybe not the next move of all the other said sponsorship of the American Diabetic Association of your diet sodas and such to replace a sugary processed food with an equally as processed non-caloric sweetened food, because that also may interfere with satiety. We see research study after research study showing obesity not resolving and increased body fat actually, or excessive calorie intake with individuals that use diet products And then we also see that in some individuals, they have hypoglycemia, meaning they actually release insulin in response to that non-caloric sweetener because of that taste of sweet. Their tongue communicates that GLUT1 taste receptor is going to communicate with the pancreas to release the insulin. And then that brings their blood sugar low. And it could be dangerously low if also on a medication. And then they go for a carb to pick them up from the sweats of their low blood sugar spike. And so it's this vicious, vicious cycle. Totally. And we'll unpack a little bit more
1: in two oh seven on some new emerging research on non-caloric sweeteners too, which I think is exciting because we've been screaming this for a while here. Most definitely. So beyond how we kind of become insulin resistant, um, let's get into some of the risk factors for actually developing type two diabetes.
2: Yes. So, you know, because it's a a demand mechanism, you know, the first one would be, of course, excessive carbohydrate intake. And um, it would also be having a poor diet and low nutrient status or, you know, the essential nutrients that help with blood sugar metabolism. So when we're looking at minerals, you know, we're looking at things like magnesium and chromium having a big role, B vitamins like biotin, vitamin K, again, we'll unpack these in a really awesome way next episode. So stay tuned for that. But an individual that's eating a processed, refined diet is going to be deficient in a lot of these key nutrients. And also they're going to have higher oxidative stress or lower antioxidant capacity. So this means that the sugars when elevated will be more destructive in their bodies. So the pathology or the process of the disease of diabetes will be more severe. And that's what's really important to note. You know, when I said that diabetes is the seventh cause of death in the US, When we think of the multiple mechanisms of diabetes destroying blood vessels, hitting kidneys, macular degeneration, right? I talked about eye health and vision loss, amputations. But in the cardiovascular world and in the brain space world of dementia and Alzheimer's, it's really this oxidative stress that these sugars create these tarry plaques and they also can create damage inside our vessels. You're you're hearing me literally rubbing my knuckles on my, my hand. It's like Blood sugar going through your vessels is like sandpaper on the walls of your vessels. And so we can see a huge gamut of, you know, the comorbidities that line up. And and they can play chicken and egg with the development of the condition itself. So, you know, being overweight, having a poor diet, generally as you do age, your glands all lose their or reduce their function. So as we get over age 45, especially if we're not managing lifestyle, we can see increased risk. Um, overall inflammatory conditions can drive this to be more concerning. Uh, sedentary lifestyle and um, having low muscle tone because your muscle actually up takes your glucose levels as well. Um, elevated stress so we talk about this a lot in our 12-week keto class. so people there are people that, are under such high stress that either they'll have autoimmune influence, right? Um, and generally, we don't see delayed onset autoimmune type 1 diabetes, but there are there are flukes that that can occur, yeah. actually. I've had quite a few clients, mm-hmm. actually, like after a
1: pregnancy or something yes. like that, where they're all of a sudden diagnosed and had no knowledge, at
2: least prior. Right. And it takes a while to weed out that they are, in fact, a type 1, not a type exactly. 2 diabetic. Yep. Um, because of that, that age element, Right. Um, So stress can be such a huge influence, but also on type two, because cortisol is a glucocorticoid. And so when you put out that primary stress responding hormone, that does increase your blood sugar levels. And even in that fight or flight response, one of the first fight or flight mechanisms is that your liver dumps glycogen or or basically your storage form of glucose into your bloodstream to fight or flee. But when we're now under stress, we're generally sedentary. So a high-stressed individual that is sedentary is going to be higher risk because of that mechanism of the stress-blood-sugar connection. And then those that have family history are generally going to have a higher predisposition. We're going to see those that have elevated blood pressure. And really, vascular conditions in general are going to be a higher uh, risk factor. Hormonal conditions, uh, especially those that tie with insulin resistance, like PCOS, um, Cushing syndrome, which would tie into the adrenals. And even, um, if we're looking at like graves and hyperthyroidism, there's often some more of that kind of autoimmune influencing factor on the stress response. Uh, as I mentioned toxins. So a lot of times we'll see in the agricultural communities, a really vampant influx of diabetes because the endocrine disruptors or the hormone-disrupting compounds in the runoff water from the agricultural treatment um, of the pesticides actually can have an influence on not just sexual hormone as endocrine, but also on the insulin and the, the glucagon, which is the opposing hormone to insulin, also made by the pancreas that gives the signal that blood sugar is too low. Um, And we can see also things like viral and toxin load to be an influencing factor. Medications can disrupt insulin production or increase blood sugar. So even being on prednisone long-term, you know, a lot of our uh, rheumatoid arthritis patients that have been long-term on uh, steroids, they'll be uh, dealing with then secondary diabetes And um, we do see in different uh, backgrounds and ethnicities that there's higher susceptibility. And um, we see this in the Hispanic Latino population, Pacific Islander Americans, and uh, Alaskan natives, as well as in the Asian and African American populations.
1: Yes, so a lot of risk factors. And and let's just talk for a second about... The actual diagnosis of diabetes. So, how do we find out that we have it?
2: Yeah. So, the hemoglobin A1C is now being accepted for for I believe like the last decade. Uh, I was a practicing dietitian when this was just starting to be accepted as diagnostic. Before it used to be like, oh well, this gives us information, but we still need you know to get those fasting blood sugar tests um, that are uh, you know above one thirty. And um, also looking at uh, oral glucose tolerance test as a secondary confirmation. And then there are random blood sugar tests. Any random blood sugar test of over 200 um, is generally suggesting diabetes. And then fasting blood sugar levels are elevated anytime they're over 100. Um, But we would say over 126, I rounded up, um, over 126 would be uh, diabetes if you have two separate confirming tests. So that used to be the gold standard, two confirming tests. Um, And then I will call out beyond random, when we're looking at diabetic management, we're looking at a postprandial read. And you can look at a one-hour postprandial or a two-hour. Generally, the gold standard is a two-hour postprandial. And um, we're looking at the uh, managed diabetic to be at 120 or less, um, or non-diabetic, excuse me, and a managed diabetic to be at 140 or less. And so I always uh, strive for even a diagnosed diabetic client of mine to be in that non-diabetic range of 120 or less postprandial two hours, and then again, under 100 at the fasted. And a hemoglobin A1c is a three-month average of your blood sugar. It's actually looking at the percent glycosylation or basically of how much sugar is coating your red blood cells. And so it's looking at that attachment of sugar on your hemoglobin. And um, this percentage is able to give us also a range of pre-diabetic and diabetic. Um, I generally like this range to be at 5.6 or below. We call it pre-diabetic at 5.7 and debatable. I say to 6.2, some say 6.4. Some will even say at six and above Mm is diagnostic of diabetes. But I believe the gold standard right now based on organizations is 6.5% is diagnostic of diabetes. But really, anytime we're above 5.6, we're in the risk factor zone, and then it just depends on your practitioner. It used to be, actually, Becky, at 7.0, they would diagnose diabetes. Yeah. So that is getting tighter over time. And um, I believe all good clinicians want to stay more aggressive versus let someone be, you know, unmanaged before slapping that diagnosis. And I know a lot of people, I remember when I worked for a physician and I was the dietitian in her office, they would say, I'm not claiming it. <laughs> I'm not claiming it. Don't you be putting that diabetes uh-huh. on my, on my chart note. And it was like, well, I, but, but this is what we're seeing in your body and this is what's going on. Um, and that opens up the whole conversation of, can you recover from diabetes? Can you be in remissive state? Is that just syntax? And I I believe if you're managed for more than an entire calendar year and you can keep your A1C under 5.6, you know, that, that we're definitely seeing someone in a remissive state.
1: And I think one thing to note here too with testing is, like you said, a lot of times we see that hyperinsulinemia or that fasting insulin going up you know, way before we see our A1C really increase. And that's a big miss, I think, with oh yeah, conventional testing is, is you usually have to ask to get a fasting insulin.
2: Most definitely you have to ask. And, and honestly, even you have to ask when we were talking about kids with the uh, diabetic diagnosis now, they're not doing A1Cs, you know, in a standard physical on a child. Mm-hmm. But I do believe strongly all obese children should be screened with an A1C at minimum. And also vitamin D and fasting insulin sure. and a CRP. <laughs> yep. um, because we want to look at their inflammation as well. And we want to look at you know, where they are on an immune and hormone level with the vitamin D. But fasting insulin levels, I like under 8 and um i think yours and mine have been in like three or four the last couple assessments yep um yep and uh it's definitely possible to manage based on lifestyle because you just don't demand the insulin based on the carbohydrate control so those are that are in a ketogenic state or a very well carb managed diet they should be able to easily keep that fasting insulin under eight And, um, we can see, yes, before diabetes, that fasting insulin getting above the the mid twenties and into the thirties. Sure. Um, let's get into, that's a risk factor range. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, let's get into maybe some of the common symptoms or, or maybe some that might not be as well known of diabetes. And then I want to unpack also some of the complications that are associated with uncontrolled diabetes and why those occur.
2: Sure. So the classic symptoms, like I said, generally don't occur until we are a really uncontrolled diabetic, like when that A1C is at the sevens or more. And that's when we'll see things like the thirst or the dry mouth, um, blurred vision. Uh, We'll see things like, neuropathy or um that's where literally the sugars are so elevated that they're actually destroying the myelin sheath or the protective coating of our nerves in our body so we'll start to see neuropathy like the tingling sensation in the hands or feet um chronically itchy dry skin um, we can see patches of that um i can never say it. can nigricans it's Something. Like Canthosis that. nigricans, <laughs> yeah. I believe, and it's the like dark patches of skin on the neck. Often we'll see, or by the armpit area mm-hmm. and folds and creases of the body. Um, we can see uh, the numbness and tingling and, and pain and swelling and less circulation in the extremities. So beyond the neuropathy itself, and this is where what happens is advanced neuropathy in an uncontrolled diabetic has them lose sensation of their feet, and so they might step on something like you know a splinter or a nail or a piece of glass and not tend to that wound And then as blood sugar levels are highly elevated, they interfere with the body's wound healing capacity and also exacerbates infections, which can get systemic. And this is where we see amputations occurring. Um, But in a lower scale, we can see a history of UTIs and yeast infections. I would say probably also like the itchy skin. Mm -hmm. Some of the things we would assign with candida, albicans actually, and dysbiosis, because often that interferes with blood sugar regulation. Um, We can see also some reproductive issues like sexual dysfunction, libido reduction, vaginal dryness, or erectile dysfunction. And um, again, any of these would be reason to definitely request at minimum a hemoglobin A1c, fasting insulin. And I would also say uh, you could do a comp at that time, which would look at a, a random glucose or fasting, depending on the time of the day that you took that test. Sure.
1: And then on down the line, when we get, you know, more into the world of uncontrolled diabetes, that's where we start to see like actual nerve damage and things like that.
2: Right. So that's where I was referring to the neuropathy and then that's what would drive the amputations. Mm -hmm. But also with nerve damage, a common thing that we'll see with diabetics is gastroparesis where that primary nerve that runs down the GI tract gets paralyzed essentially or lower motility or peristalsis pumping and so they'll deal with a lot of bloating and gi duress because their body isn't moving the food down the intestines and then that can also drive bacterial overgrowth and work kind of chicken and egg against the body Um, we can see myopathy so muscle weakness and pain Um, we can see like i said skin infections we can see candida infections that flare in uncontrolled diabetics so again could it be chicken or egg Um, We can see folliculitis, so infected hair particles. We can see um, more, again, sores, slow wound healing, amputations, vision loss, blindness, uh, diabetic uh, retinopathy, nerve damage, cataracts, glaucoma, macular degeneration. That's all in the eye health world. And then I think the most common, um, well, secondary common would be the kidney disease. it's the number one cause for individuals going on dialysis is uncontrolled diabetes. And we'll see elevated blood pressure preceding that. But I think the most common comorbidity impact is heart and blood vessel damage. Because again, the um, heart attack and stroke can be seen based on the damage of those uncontrolled blood sugars on the vessels causing plaque buildup um, and also causing uh, interior uh, damage to the vessel
1: integrity. Totally. So just thinking about all of those complications as related to, you know, basically your body parts and, and internal organs and systems being coated in sugar. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so to take it a little bit further, maybe a little more shock and awe, um, let's talk about the government guidelines for diabetics and kind of what the recommended diabetic diet is looks like. And I know you have some experience, um, from your, you know, training as a certified diabetes educator as well. Um, but I think this is just such a huge area where, you know, I know during my dietetic internship, I was like, this is not lining up that we're just prescribing more and more carbs to people who are diabetic.
2: Right. So this is perhaps the most frustrating element. And I remember that when I was an intern, I would be like hitting my head up against a wall and I would be like it, it, fighting for instance for uh, you know why an individual might want whole fat milk instead of skim milk <laughs> um, because it would be more satiating and also the CLAs and their dairy might help them with insulin resistance. There's just a very myopic and, and almost uh, cognitive... Disconnect? What would you say, Becky? I, I don't know how else to say it, honestly, of that the diabetic diet should be low fat and should be, um, I can't even say low carb, right? Nope, not um, at all. Carb, they say carb managed. Um, and the interesting thing is, I would often be told by preceptors, like, oh, but you have to add a carb to that. Right. And I would say, but they're but this patient's blood sugar levels look beautiful. And they're saying that they really are into the Mediterranean diet. And they're the, but you know, hypoglycemia is real. And, and one of the biggest concerns before I go into describing the diet is this 1515 rule, which is if your blood sugar goes low, you test your, if you're feeling a symptom of a low blood sugar, which is that this is like a huge part of hospital dietitian education and even outpatient diabetic, uh, where, you know, your doctor might say, okay, you're a diabetic. Now go to this, you know, XYZ hospital for their outpatient diabetes program. And it's like four classes, right? And it might be, it might be every other week. And you learn about how to manage lifestyle as a diabetic. And there is some good stuff like moving your body and drinking your water, but a lot of the emphasis is on because of your medications, these are some side effects that you might experience and these are symptoms of hypoglycemia. And it's never to talk to your doctor about lowering your medication and it's never to question if the medication works well for your body. It's actually teaching you how to eat more carbs so that you can better tolerate your medication. And I feel that that right there is such a cognitive disconnect. The concept of if you're feeling a symptom of shakiness, nausea, sweats, um, GI distress and um, brain fog, difficulty concentrating, um, tunnel vision blackout, can't operate a vehicle, that you should test your blood sugar. Um, You know, now the meters have the ability to memorize with date and time or whatever, right? So you test your blood sugar, you eat 15 grams of carbs and you retest it in 15 minutes. And you don't just eat any 15 grams of carbs. You have to eat a rapid responding 15 grams of carbs like apple juice or orange juice, or they have these glucose tablets that you should keep on your purse for emergencies because you need to get your glucose levels back up. Um, and, and so it's really wild because often what happens then is the individual is stressed. They're already having an undesired symptom. They They eat 15 grams of carbs and then they test and their blood sugars back up. But they're absolutely... <laughs> stressing their body based on a low that's driven from the medication. And I just think that that's not overtly discussed enough.
1: Right. And then what happens once that 15 grams wears off, right? Right. We just have to chase it and it becomes this vicious cycle.
2: And, and what happens when your body's insulin is is responding to those 15 grams of carbs and you're gaining more body fat from this type of treatment, you know? So I, I just feel, um, my heart goes out to so many of you, especially if you're new listeners, that are diabetics that have been mismanaged. And I hope that, that this enlightens in some ways that you can really re harness and take back control of your health. Because this is from the CDC page to date, right? Becky, yes. you pulled this for today's yep. interview yep. <laughs> on the diabe- diabetes or diabetic diet. And it states there's no one size fits all answer. Everyone is different because everyone's body is different. But on average, people with diabetes should get about 45% of their calories from carbs. A carb is a, a serving. A carb serving is measured as 15 grams per serving, and that's what we use across the board as well. It's the standard, um, you know, carb control exchange system of 15 grams. And um, this is me talking now, not the CDC anymore. Um, so when I'm using this 15 gram of carb perspective, I used to always use the visual of slices of bread with individuals, and I think it helps because you'll look at like a a cliff bar right and it's 46 grams of carbs in there well then you would look at it and say whoa that's three slices of bread stacked up in that wrapper of that product or you look at a can of soda and it's 64 grams of carbs and you say whoa 64 divided by 15 that's and especially when we're talking in you know in lower income areas or areas where they need that like tangible connection it's really helpful to to help them comb through their day and see dude, you had 13 slices of bread equivalent in that day in your carb intake. How do we shave some of those out? Where are they coming from? And what are the dense foods that if you could drink that Coke, but could you eat your sandwich, your bag of chips, your apple, and have four more consecutive slices of bread? And that's where people have that connection and they're like, no, I couldn't. Totally. Um, That would totally fill me up. I'd feel totally stuffed. And it's like, well, that means then you're eating something that's too refined in carbohydrates. So I think that that 15-gram slice of bread rule is a good visual for you to – break down your day and and ask yourself when you're eating something, would this fill me up in comparison to X amount of slices of bread? Okay, so that's just kind of the way that I've broken it down for patients. But generally speaking, I keep all meals at... Zero to 30 max grams of carbs a day, and I keep a total individual at a max of 60 to 75 grams of carbs a day. Max, max, max 90 Um, when we're talking about diabetic control. But the CDC guidelines right now are that most women need three to four carb servings per meal, that's 45 to 60 grams per meal, and they want you to eat. Three meals and two snacks, mind you. Um, So this is three to four carb servings per meal plus one to two carb servings per snack. And then most men need four to five carb servings. That's 60 to 75 grams per meal plus one to three carb servings per snack and then what you need is dependent on your age weight activity factor and your diabetes medications so make sure you work with the dietitian to set your own carb goal and if you use insulin ask about options to match your insulin dose to the amount of food that you eat at meals and snacks and i think that that was the starting connection like sliding insulin scales and now that most people are on pumps which allows some autonomy of the individual to lower their carb control, which that's a very beautiful thing when I was talking about that 15-15 rule of kind of chasing the lows. Yep. But the oral hypoglycemic drugs like metformin, for instance, um, you, know, you may be on 2,000 milligrams and go down to 1,000 milligrams, but they're not as dose-dependent as something like a pump, which is reading your glucose levels before you start eating and then adjusting based on your actual body's metabolic process sure
1: an emphasis on on the wording at least from the cdc is need yeah. i don't think we need those carbs at at those meals but let's break down like what a sample diabetic menu would look like
2: yeah yeah so the the from the mayo clinic this example menu looks like for breakfast um, whole wheat bread one one medium slice with 2 teaspoons of jelly and a half cup of shredded wheat cereal with With a cup of low fat milk, a piece of fruit, and coffee. So you got your carbs from your bread, your half cup of shredded wheat cereal, and we will talk a little bit in next episode about the gluten blood sugar connection because that was a big aha moment for me as a diabetic educator Um, because you're told fiber is good fiber slows down the carbohydrate to glucose breakdown so you want more of these whole grain whole wheat products so they're having the the shredded wheat cereal the whole wheat bread both of those products have sugar in them as an ingredient mind you and then a piece of fruit um and really no protein the only protein in that breakfast is coming from the 1% low fat milk which is giving 8 grams of protein uh, that doesn't fit our label lingo becky no and where's the fat yeah there's none oh and then the jelly too and it doesn't distinguish you know sugar free or sugar right. and neither are win in my book no. so whatever and then the lunch is a roast beef sandwich on wheat bread with lettuce low fat american cheese it, chemical shit storm tomato mayonnaise and uh, medium apple with water dinner is salmon one and a half teaspoons of vegetable oil a a small baked potato a half cup of carrots carb carb a half cup of green beans and a medium white dinner roll carb and unsweetened iced tea and milk for more carb. Uh And then a snack of two and a half cups of popcorn with one and a half teaspoon of margarine. So this is 12 carb servings and 180 grams of carbs in that day for that individual. And that was a calorie controlled diabetic plan. And that is more than three times what I would recommend a diabetic to consume in the world of carbs. That is less than a third of the amount of protein that I'd recommend and fat that I'd recommend for an individual that was in this condition. And the forms and types are so important to call out because we know that these polyunsaturated fats drive insulin resistance. There's such compelling literature on these oxidized vegetable fats working against metabolic health. Yes, and these are
1: quote-unquote up-to-date recommendations. So you'll notice no mention of pairing your carbs with protein and fat like we discuss, no discussion of lowering carbs overall and definitely like you said no attention to food quality.
2: Absolutely. I think that that type of a meal plan is a recipe for diabetes. I think if you took a person that has healthy metabolic function, like oh gosh, I should almost do it. I'm getting a CGM soon and maybe I should <laughs> I couldn't tolerate the gluten, so I'd no. have to do gluten-free, and my body would be so angry at me. But wouldn't it be funny, Becky, if I did a week of my normal eating diet, and then I did a five-day run of the CDC-recommended diabetic diet, at least in grams of carbs, and just saw what would happen in my CGM, which is a continuous glucose um, manager, and it, it's going to stick on my arm and read my blood sugar. That'd be so It would
1: be very interesting, and I think you would feel terrible. I think
2: I would. I'm not sure if my <laughs> research would be worth the cost of benefit. Right. Cool. But oh my gosh. Maybe but if I could get a documentary film, it'd be worth it. Yeah.
1: If, if we could do that or do it for YouTube, that would be an interesting uh, little mini series doc. I'm sure Byron would be into that. Oh
2: goodness. <laughs> I'm, I'm very confident that I would have dysglycemia, meaning imbalanced blood sugar levels, eating like that. And I would be miserable in my GI tract and I would be dealing with inflammation and I would be dealing with unfavorable body composition, brain fog, difficulty concentrating, I, yeah. Yep. No bueno. It would be nah. a sacrifice to oh my say my the gosh. least. Um,
1: and yeah, I wish I had saved like some of the handouts that I was expected to give to patients in the hospital when I was doing my dietetic internship. Um, cause even with, you know, type one diabetics and children, I remember recommendations of 250 grams of carbs. So actually yeah. that 180 might be conservative. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, Food subsidies certainly don't help this situation, as you're talking about, you know, the, the gluten and wheat bread and refined carbohydrates. And the reality is that diabetes does impact minorities and those of lower socioe- socioeconomic status in higher numbers.
2: Yes, and so when on, it's a two part, when food subsidies, which impact, you know, America food culture and food recommendations and uh, affordability. Of foods, as well as government mandated SNAP and incentives, as far as welfare and um, actual monetizing or providing access to food, it is going to mimic those subsidies. So it's it's an it's such a frustrating, unfortunate um, space that we have ourselves in because there's 22 billion dollars of farm subsidies that are paid out at least in 2019. Um, and that was one of the highest years in, in the last 14 years of farm subsidies provided. And the federal go- government spent more than $18 billion in 2018 on farm subsidies. And there's only 31% of farmers, however, receiving these. The highest subsidized crops are corn, soybean, wheat, cotton, and rice. And so when we're looking at enriched wheat flour, when we're looking at high fructose corn syrup, or we're looking at maltodextrin, or the fact that it is damn near impossible to buy anything in the middle aisles of the grocery store that is free of gluten, corn, or soy, this is why we are actually funding the production of these things and then that is going to reduce the cost, so the food manufacturers are incentivized to use these chemical shitstorms and these compounds. I mean, when we talk about the anti-anxiety diet and the five top pro-inflammatory foods, four of them are in this conversation: gluten, corn, soy, and sugar. You know, um, and so if we're talking about the impact that this has on mental health, which I have strongly advocated for and provided more than. Uh, ample research on how those four ingredients, if you will, interfere with mental health, driving depression, driving anxiety, driving food addiction. And this is across the board in metabolic health. So we're talking about opening up and unveiling insulin resistance and diabetes. We're talking about the influence on cardiometabolic health, on cancer, and, and so much more of what's destroying American health totally and not to mention
1: that those subsidized crops are going to be gmo as well at least in the form of the corn and the soy
2: yes and you know then that further influences the insulin resistance because of the endocrine disrupting impact of glyphosate from the roundup ready soy and the roundup ready corn you know these are the two predominant forms of the gmos which are going to have higher input of that, um, you know, Roundup chemical spray, which gives us that glyphosate, that that glyphosate, which is a neurotoxin, and also interferes with the way that our body regulates blood sugar. Yes, absolutely. And then, um,
1: in terms of, of research that's out there, there have been some papers published on consumption of these subsidized foods, and at least you know some research starting to emerge of their potentially harmful impact but there's not a whole lot you really have to dig to find it
2: yeah most definitely and and they're even looking at studies on because of the subsidies what that influencing behavior or buying styles or trying to distinguish of whether americans have the autonomy or ability to buy without these ingredients basically because because they're basically ubiquitous meaning they're in everything yep yep and and we're finding
1: again with the socioeconomic status um Piece of the puzzle that just further complicates and perpetuates this
2: but i do want to share on on that vein because in the world of me uh shedding light and speaking a lot of truth during the pandemic which will make some connections at the end of this episode uh, i can't not yeah. these days you have to i mean right <laughs> uh because because it's just the greatest in your face cognitive disconnect so if we can start to see these parts of how you know the like i was talking a couple weeks ago the american gastroenterological association and their buyout and their campaign you know a couple episodes back what 198 198, where where we talked about probiotics and i didn't do all that research prior to that episode but we're going to unpack similar truths today on the american diabetes association and these governing agencies really have a lot of media play, a lot of play in what your physicians are told of how to practice, and also in the political arena of what influences access and what influences standard standard of care. Um, and so this impacts Medicare and Medicaid and the treatment algorithms, and that can set the standard often of how hospitals function. Sure. And, and so there's a huge infrastructure impact of financial gain and i hate to sound negative saying this but we talked about it with paul saladino as well a couple episodes back of really big pharma and big ag having these jointed relationships because they know that if the american public stays sick and malnourished they are going to forever be handcuffed to big pharma to managed the lifestyle dysfunction. Um, And I will say, going back on the full circle of the the socioeconomic status and access, I've had a lot of people actually reach out to me since April that have said, hey, I'm someone that's on SNAP. I'm someone that receives food stamps and I have learned so much from your podcast and I have been able to impact my family. I've had XYZ outcomes. I've gotten this family member off of insulin. I have seen three medication reduction from my uncle and we are able to modify and reduce carbohydrate intake and the coolest thing is when you do that when you break up with carb addiction you are able to free yourself from that chicken and egg relationship of you know the insulin resistance increased belly fat lack of satiety blood sugar drops increased carb intake over and over roller coaster but you also get the myriad of other health benefits like we talk on at exhaustum of, of keto, right? Of like mental clarity, um, mood enhancement. That's why the anti-anxiety diet is a low-carb diet approach. Um, so you really start to regain this freedom. And it is at your capacity because less of your financial needs go to the doctor appointments, Mm -hmm. less of your financial needs. You have more health freedom, which creates more freedom to work, which creates less side effects. And so it really is something that I want to continue to provide free resources to hit all incomes to have the access to make these types of decisions.
1: So before we go into conventional treatment of diabetes, let's have a quick word from our sponsor for this episode, Wild Foods.
2: Yes, there is nothing conventional about wild foods. They are a company out of Austin which painstakingly seeks the most quality wild sourced ingredients around the globe, from turmeric to medicinal mushrooms to teas. They provide some of our personal pantry favorites. And when you go on over to wildfoods.co, that's .co, and put in the code AllyMillerRD at checkout, you will get 12% off your first order. There really is not many days that go by in my household where I'm not using some of my favorite products from Wild Foods, which include things like the Taiji G green rooibos tea with ginger lemongrass and lime that's been a fantastic one for the hot texas sun I'm also really obsessed with their twilight black tea and use that all the way through my 10 day detox and their matcha is my favorite matcha on the market. It is vibrantly bright green, not oxidized at all and provides me that brain boost with L-theanine, which is significantly concentrated in the matcha that helps with the brain alpha waves to mellow us out and also maintain a creative thought process without agitation and anxiety. Um, We know also that teas in general, especially the green tea family, so the matcha and their green tea offerings, have that EGCG, which are going to support body fat burn and can support insulin sensitivity. So a great beverage that will not influence a blood sugar spike or blood sugar crash because just don't add any of those non-caloric sweeteners or anything to sweeten it. Have a clean tea and that's a great way to boost your belly fat burn and also enhance your insulin sensitivity. Um, And then to get your brain online, if you will, I've been playing with a lot of their adaptogenic mushroom blends including their cocotropic which is a superfood elixir it has uh, wild cacao reishi chaga maca and turmeric so very anti-inflammatory gives you that brain and libido boost and also that stress resilience and immune support during this time, which is all really important. And that's their tropic, Really fantastic mixed with full-fat coconut milk. Um, it drinks like a hot chocolate and also works really well iced. And if you do need that cold brew, it can help to be mixed into something like that. So go on over to wildfoods.co, put in the code AllieMillerRD at checkout, and you will get 12% off your first order.
1: Um, so let's dig in on maybe some of the Conventional treatment of diabetes and and kind of what the common first line of defense is.
2: Okay, so I mentioned you know metformin, which is a, a brand name, but Glucophage um, is the generic of that, and this is generally the first line of defense. It's an oral hypoglycemic drug, as I mentioned, so it lowers the glucose production in the liver and it also has some mechanisms to improve the body's sensitivity to insulin so that it has less insulin resistance or allows that lock and key mechanism to be more efficient. Um, We can see GI uh, side effects to be the most common with metformin or glucophage. Nausea, diarrhea, um, bloating, and uh, gas are common that we would see in this world. Another medication would be before insulin um, would be the sulfonylureas, which includes um, like glipizide and also glyburide. Um, We can see lower blood sugar or, or more of a risk factor of uh, hypoglycemia because these medications aid in secretion of insulin. And so this plays a role with how your pancreas puts out insulin. And then um, there are drugs like Actos, um, which works more in insulin resistance in the body's fat tissues. Um, And these drugs have been linked to, as a side effect, actually weight gain um, and also uh, heart uh, failure and anemia. So there's some cardiovascular risk factor the, the Actos is really no longer... That was kind of more popular in the early 2000s. And I think because of those side effects, it's kind of lost its uh, stride per se. And then there are even um, DPP-4 inhibitors. And um, these would be like Genuvia. And um, these are going to reduce blood sugar levels. And they tend to have more of a modest effect. These are the ones that had the promising effect maybe of weight loss. Um, they don't show weight gain. Um, but a lot of the trials that showed weight loss had them on a controlled diet. So it's kind of like Mm -hmm. you didn't do a placebo of doing the drug without the controlled diet. Um, so I'm, I'm not really sure on my confidence mechanism there of just diet and lifestyle control. Um, and then there is the side effect of the DPP4 inhibitors on joint pain and increased risk of pancreatitis. Uh, there are, glp1 receptor antagonist so that's that mechanism i mentioned about the taste receptor influence of sweet and the connection with um, your glucagon and um, these are injectable medications as well they can slow down digestion and they can help to lower blood sugar levels Uh, these also are ones that may be associated bieta is one of the name brands or victosa that were also kind of um uh taught to have some weight loss support um, but also can cause nausea and pancreatitis as side effects and then um, the SGLT2 inhibitors um, these are drugs that prevent the kidneys from reabsorbing sugar into the blood and um, usually used as a secondary instead of a primary medication Um, but these have more influence on blood pressure dysregulation uh, urinary tract infections and also heart attack or heart disease
1: so yeah, I think metformin is probably the most um, actively prescribed and, and the most common one that people have heard of in that department. And you know, before going on one of these medications, usually when you get that first, you know, borderline A one C or an A one C that's in that diabetic range, there is some talk about diet and lifestyle for maybe five minutes. And then you get a referral to, you know, just eat better and lose some weight. And that's kind of like where the doctor likely will leave it. Um, if hopefully. they have time, hopefully they would do a little more. And then maybe we'll get a recommendation, you know, to see a dietitian. But even then, that diabetic diet is probably the handout that you're going to get.
2: Most definitely. Um, and then, you know, after one of these oral drugs has been used for a period of time or because maybe the individual wasn't given ample dietary counseling and a, a you know customized diet maybe it wasn't um, ethnically appropriate maybe it you know didn't work for the individual's flavor profile so it just sat and collected dust sure. or, or it was just an inappropriate excessive carb recommendation um, you know then the next line of defense beyond some of those injectable drugs that are not directly insulin is insulin mm-hmm. and there will be long-acting insulin and um, short-acting insulin. And, um, you know, the insulin train can be very um, wild because, again, that can create. You try to dose based on your carb gram, and there takes a lot of finesse to understand, you know, carb counting, and especially if you're dining out or eating at restaurants. And um, that's where we can really see some serious dependency and blood sugar dysregulation and um, difficulty getting off. But I will say, in, in the last 13 years that I've been working with diabetics, I have been able to get individuals that have been on insulin for over a decade off of insulin by using lifestyle and using close to a ketogenic or an absolutely ketogenic diet. Totally. I think
1: all of this needs to be taken with a grain of salt, but we promise there's hope it's coming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and just, you know, since we're kind of lifting up the veil and talking about some of these medication side effects, I think... It is worth noting um, some of the sponsorship or, or financial partnerships that the American Diabetes Association states on their website. So why would they want you to get better when, you know, Lily Diabetes, which is a huge commercial insulin company, is one of their leading corporate sponsors in, you know, a million plus annually.
2: Wow. And so the, there was what the American Diet. Diabetes Association had the Pathway to Stop Diabetes corporate sponsors, and they cumulatively provide over $50 million in this initiative. And these are some of the uh, initiative uh, donors that are listed. So Lily Diabetes, which is an insulin company, um, and then there are those, and they were what in the higher echelon, over a million, right? Mm-hmm. And then there are a lot that provide over 500000 annually, including Merrick, um, which is prescription medication, vaccine, biologic therapies. Uh, we see uh, Abbott, another big pharma company, medical devices, and medications, generic medications. Dexcom, uh, which is going to be providing uh, the this is uh, what blood sugar CGMs, meters, right? Yep. CGMs. Yep. Um, Pfizer. Okay, so medications. Um, we see BD, which is looking at, um, also there, there are also glucometers. I thought BD is right. Medical technology. Yeah. Yep. So they're yep. looking at, uh, I think they make some pumps as well, okay. but, but it's a all biotech, um, uh, med tech and big pharma, every single one. Um, did you find any that were big ag, Becky? I didn't look myself. Not on that initiative in
1: particular. No.
2: But what happens when we go to the conferences for Certified sure. Diabetes oh, yeah. Educator when Coca-Cola is a sponsor <laughs> yep. still? Or, and this opens up the whole world of this, uh, again, cognitive dissonance of having medical professionals advocate and state that, quote unquote, all foods fit and that it would be a disservice for us to not allow diabetics to have chocolate cake. Or ice cream or sodas and so we have to create this whole other world of processed products that are sugar-free that show and demonstrate you know again blood sugar imbalance can actually create continued blood sugar um highs and lows so so again imbalance continued sugar addictive tendencies And drive excessive carbohydrate intake, which stress out the body, requiring more need for medication, more side effects, and other disease pathology. So the the thing that's really remarkable to me, when you look at an association like the American Diabetes Association, and again, you ask, are they doing all they can to support diabetics? My question would be, why are they recommending a diet that drives diabetes And my answer would be point blank that because their sponsors are biotech and pharma and their sponsors have vested interest in maintaining you as a customer. And there's importance to know as a listener that big pharma will fail to mention that there's no medication that reverses diabetes. The only way you can quote unquote reverse diabetes or be in a remissive state is through carbohydrate control therapeutic diet i won't call it a diabetic diet i'm going to call it a therapeutic low glycemic and likely ketogenic diet and healthy lifestyle which includes stress management movement and a nutrient-dense diet that provides antioxidants vitamins minerals and compounds that support the function of the body right because they don't make money on that guys yeah point blank (laughs) yeah And so it's really sad and scary when we understand that, again, these are the companies that are giving input to government on what crops need to be subsidized, because there's PACs and super PACs based on big pharma and these organizations of practitioners that have vested interest in keeping their customer base. Totally. Let's dig in
1: just to kind of close on today, maybe um, a little bit on pandemic and um, the impact of diabetes on worsened COVID outcomes.
2: Okay. So, um, I mean, we talked about a little bit in the episode with Dr. Paul Saladino, the influence of our T cells and insulin resistance. And the idea that when there are elevated insulin levels and when the insulin mechanisms are not sensitized or optimized in the body, the immune system simply cannot function appropriately. Um, We also know that some of the... so, So that right there, right? If there's anything going on that's going to require... Optimal immune function both on an innate, meaning when the immune system is exposed. So when your body's exposed to said viral load or pathogen, as well as the acquired immune system, your body's ability to understand and create antibodies and orchestrate your white blood cell response and your other uh compounds in the body that are able to detect, remember, and combat. All of that is hindered when you have insulin resistance. Um, And then on the microscopic level, when we're talking about blood sugar and uh, blood sugar elevation, we know that high glucose, and especially when paired with high lipid counts like triglycerides, we tend to see mismanaged with diabetics as well. High glucose in diabetic patients can trigger the cytokine storm, which is this mechanism of, you know, cytokines are inflammatory mediators that the immune system puts out as an overreaction and can attack the body. So, this is where we can see exacerbation in the world of like blood vessels and clots. Um, this is where we can see damaged endothelial cells. Uh, We can see uh, the lining of our blood vessels to become more inflamed as white blood cells try to rush in to attack the virus. And this is where we can see the clots. Um, And this is where we can see some of the primary influence of, again, the blood sugar connection. And so when they're talking about, quote unquote, healthy individuals that are dying of covid the question is what was their fasting insulin level Mm -hmm. and the question is i mean gosh i just saw a study not a study excuse me a a story of someone coming out of the hospital on a wheelchair he was i would argue maybe morbidly obese not just obese and um, was drinking a straight up mountain dew being wheeled out of the hospital of having beat covid um and it's like it's just it's just jaw-dropping to me that there's such a disconnect and and not even to mention so there's the element that your blood sugar when unmanaged and elevated can drive or perpetuate the cytokine storms which create the havoc the downstream havoc of your body battling covid so it's not even against the mechanism of covid it's the upregulation of your immune system saying something doesn't belong and then going into this attack mode and that driving excessive inflammation. But there's also the influence of the T cells and the insulin resistance, and there's also the influence of what we've been talking about in every immune episode we've ever had, that when you eat something that is in refined carbohydrates, or if you have elevated blood sugar levels, your white blood cell army, you know, so your lymphocytes, your neutrophils, all of your white blood cell response, which is innate, is... Reduced in its efficacy, so you have multiple mechanisms working against you when you're not managing your blood sugar control. Totally, and and I think you know, current pandemic is bringing this to light, and it's kind of
1: like, what do we do with this? So I know in the UK there are actually some initiatives to see individuals lose weight and improve their metabolic health, and like bike to work and things like that. However, in the US, what we're doing is incentivizing testing by giving them a free Big Mac, you know, I when they saw get their that. test.
2: Yeah, I saw that. And, and other things like, you know, um, demonstrating. I can't tell you how many dietitians and other healthcare practitioners that have overtly spoken out and said, well, you know, this is just not the time to worry about weight loss or right, eating healthy. Right. All foods fit. I don't want you to be stressed about what you're eating. You just eat what you want to eat. It's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so it's super frustrating. Um, and next week we will share with you guys so many functional medicine applications. But right now, if we're to give you three pieces of advice, let's at least close yes, there, back Yes, let's do game. that
1: because it's turned into an epic rant. Yes.
2: <laughs> if we were to give you three pieces of advice, One would be employ a low-glycemic, low-carbohydrate diet. So understand what carb counting is. There's so many resources out there to give you that 15 gram of carb, carb counting amount. Or you could just use MyFitnessPal or any other free app that starts to track your carb intake. Um, But if you can keep to less than 30 grams of carbs per meal... And if you are getting low blood sugars with that type of a protocol at again, 60 to 90 grams of carbs total a day, then you need to consult with your practitioner to reduce your medication. And if they will not, you need to fire your doctor and find a new doctor. Mm -hmm. Um, Number two would be to move your body and use your blood sugar meter to empower yourself with you know, what you're putting in your mouth and whether that puts you in a non-diabetic or a diabetic body. And you can use that to be empowered. So when you're eating your lunch or your dinner or your breakfast, Play with what you're eating, write down what you're eating, take your blood sugar before and after the meal and see if you're able to at that two hours postprandial stay under 120. Then you'll determine of, you know, whether the omelet with the half the avocado has room for a half cup of roasted sweet potato as one carb choice, or if you do better with a third cup of tart raspberries, or if you're able to, because you worked out that morning, do both. Um, This is the best way that you can get the feedback from your body by using your glucometer. And yes, you might want to be a little bit more aggressive in the beginning, but that's going to help to give you data when you're talking to your doctor about why you need to reduce your medication to say, hey, this is what I'm eating. This is what my blood sugar control looks like. And I would like to advocate for a lower dosage because I'm concerned about the harmful side effects. And I would want to do a hemoglobin A1C every quarter, or at least, you know, because that's just over that three-month threshold to confirm that I am managing and staying in control. And the third thing I would say is move your body. And if you do experience um, or, or you do want to liberate and have two to three carb choices at a meal instead of just the one. Um, you know, you have the access to food freedom, but also the empowerment and information of if you choose to be a diabetic with your food freedom, or you choose to be someone who is truly free and not harnessed to big pharma. And that's your choice based on what you put in your mouth truly at the end of the day. Um, but if you do want to see what two to three or three carb choices look like, you can test your blood sugar. And then you can also go for a walk or move your body. You know, 30 minutes of movement outside can bring that glucose into your muscle tissue, and that'll help to bring that blood sugar level down. So you might find that if you eat a dinner at six o'clock, that you, know, you are able to, if you walk with your partner at 7 o'clock by 8 p.m. when you test that postprandial read, you get more fl- carb flexibility at that meal because of that 30-minute walk than if you didn't. So you can test that same scenario with or without walking. And then you get to develop what is your prescription to keep your body in a remissive state. And you ultimately have full freedom, again, of that empowerment of how you move, how you what you consume and then what your body responds to accordingly and over time likely you'll get more and more blood sugar control with the consistency of the carbohydrate control Absolutely.
1: I think those are really, really good starting points. And then next week in episode two of seven, we'll be covering more on the practical solutions to prevention in the first place and how you can get yourself in a remissive state as well using supplementation and other diet and lifestyle strategy.
2: Yes. So we hope that you love today's episode. Uh, Go on over and make sure that wherever you're listening, whether it is iTunes or Google play uh, that you leave us a five-star review and subscribe to the podcast. And again, if you have not checked out the naturally nourished YouTube channel, go check it out there are tons of bite-sized pieces of information and tips and recipes that i'm sure you will love and enjoy it's a free resource we're so excited about empowering you guys to take back control of your health and to ensure that your family your household and your community thrives through this epidemic versus simply surviving
0: thank you for listening to the naturally nourished podcast